0: get ready to laugh out loud at the tribeca festival june 5th to june 16th in nyc experience hilarious talks comedy specials and
1: feel-good films with your fan favorite comedians like hannah einbinder judd apatow neil patrick harris take Nataro, and more you have to be there get your tickets now at tribecafilm.com did you know the tribeca festival showcases more than just film and tv What is going on when a firearm isn't just something that's taken out for hunting during hunting season, but it's actually something that's part of your everyday life?
0: Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So, a couple of weeks ago, we had another awful awful, awful mass shooting. One of the things that has begun to happen, as I've been in journalism now for a while, and I've been at at Vox for a while, is I've become, many of us have become, in a way that is chilling, used to covering these. The news begins to come over, the transom, you see it on cable, or you see it on Twitter, or you hear it some other way. And we spring into action. And we know in this way that breaks my heart, we know exactly what to do. We know which content to begin to move. We know how to contextualize the larger question of gun violence in America. We begin punching out these statistics, like the fact that America has 4.4% of the world's population and almost 50% of its civilian-owned guns, or that our murder rate is X amount that of any other developed nation, our gun murder rate, or that suicides um, are in fact the bigger problem with gun violence, that most gun deaths in America are actually suicides. And it's not that any of this is wrong. It's that we do it every time because it doesn't stop being true, right? But there is something in the way there's never any movement uh, in the overall debate, in the way it just pushes us all to our corners, that I, I don't know. I've I've begun to be really—I don't know what to do with it. Um. I don't know if, if we're, we're making things better or we're making it worse. I don't know how to unlock this. I mean, the fact that things are hard to unlock doesn't mean there is an answer. There's obviously a more excitement and energy this time around the students and the, the student movement. But for the early wins that began to rack up and even for that, that bipartisan conference Trump did— that seems to have stalled at least at the national level as well. So th- there's something really depressing here. Um, and I want to make sure that at least conceptually, we don't just mire in it. We don't just stay doing the same thing, thinking the same thing, or, or you know, at least on, on this show. So I've been trying to think about how to look at the gun debate a little bit differently. And I remembered a book that was recommended to me actually on this podcast in the Evan Osnos episode called Citizen Protectors by Jennifer Carlson. Uh, Carlson is a sociologist at the University of Arizona, and her book is a a deep study of gun carriers in Michigan, what the gun is doing as an identity for them, how it changes their experience of the world. I want to be pretty clear here. It is not my view that what the gun debate just needs Mm -hmm. is empathy. I'm not sure that empathy will lead to any different outcome. I'm not sure that a different understanding of the identities at play will somehow unlock a compromise. Uh, You'll you'll hear me talk about this. I, I, I don't have that optimistic view of it. But I do think appreciating the identity of gun ownership on a deeper level is important to do nevertheless, even if it is only to understand why nothing is happening here, even if it is only to understand Why? And I'm guessing that many of you, like me, fall on the gun control, pro-gun control side of this debate, even if it's only to understand why what can seem obvious, if you're on that side of the debate, if you're looking at it through that lens, seems not just not obvious but noxious on the other end. So this is a conversation about what it is like to carry a gun about how that changes your sense of self, about how one might see that and how the NRA in its training arm, which is important and does not get that much political attention, encourages you to see it as a civic duty, how it leads you to feel that you are the answer to these problems of disorder and crime and violence and threat and not the cause of it. And what a better gun debate, if such a thing is possible, might look like. If you don't like guns, you're going to hear things in in here that you're going to disagree with. I hope you do. Um, I I, I did. Uh, And I think that that's a worthwhile perspective to expose to. And again, I don't think that by doing this, I, I can tell you I did not find the answer here. I don't know that there is an answer. I think a lot of hard political problems don't really have answers. But I do think that the gun debate is not a policy question. It is not fundamentally at this point a policy debate. It's an identity debate. Being pro-gun and anti-gun have been very heavily integrated into people's political identities. And if you are someone who carries a gun, it is integrated, as you'll hear in this, into your everyday identity. And it is very hard to compromise on identity, in part because all policies end begin to seem like a raising or a lowering of your status in society. And so seeing some of these debates as flowing out of identity and flowing out of that everyday lived experience is important. Um, Citizen Protectors is a really, really good book on this. I found it uh, really, really useful. And and Carlson has a lot to say that is worth hearing. So this, I'm not saying this will solve it in any way. It will not solve the gun debate. But but hopefully it helps you understand it more. It helped me understand it more. Helps you participate in it a little bit better. And who knows, maybe, maybe somewhere lurking in here, there is a hint of something that that could be a little bit more productive, um, that could be a little bit of ground on which people can at least have a conversation that takes the other's identity into account. Uh, Before we get into it, as always, please send me your feedback on this episode, your ideas for guests for future episodes, particularly looking for guest ideas where they have an idea or they have a theory or they've done something that we are not hearing that much about, but that people should be hearing a lot more about. So if there's something that you're obsessed with and you you wanted to get exposure on this show, please send that to me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But other quick ask is that if you are not checking out Today Explained, our new daily explainer podcast, it is unbelievably good. Um, it is one of the things we are doing at Vox that I am proudest of, that I'm the most bowled over by. So just stop what you're doing for a minute. Give me uh, this much of your trust and go subscribe. Give it a couple days. I think you'll really get a lot out of it. I am getting a lot out of it. Uh, you can subscribe to Today Explained wherever you get your podcast. Whatever you are getting this podcast on, you can get that podcast on. So just take a second and give it a shot. Um, but with all that said, here is Jennifer Carlson. Jennifer Carlson, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So early in your book, you, you pose the question, what are guns doing for the men who carry them? What's your answer?
1: Yeah, so that's really the big question of the the entire book. So my book, Citizen Protectors, looks specifically at gun carriers and specifically gun carriers in Michigan, uh, largely in the metro Detroit area. So... Why concealed carry? It's kind of funny, you know. Sociologists study everything related to society, and when I was, uh, you know, trying to find my dissertation topic as a graduate student at UC Berkeley in their sociology department, Obama had just gotten elected. There was suddenly this sort of uh, whispering of of the shelves of Walmart being cleared of you know ammo and guns uh, because clearly a Democrat as U.S. President was going to ban you know ban firearms. And so I thought, well, surely sociologists have had a lot to say about this. And what surprised was that not only had sociologists had not a lot to say about it, but they had largely missed a massive social transformation that had happened over the previous few decades in the U.S., which is this explosion in gun carry. Um, so Americans carrying guns as they go to get a cup of coffee, as they drop their kids off to, at school, which is legal in Michigan, um, as they go do their grocery shopping. And so what I wanted to know was what is going on when a firearm isn't just something that's sort of stashed somewhere for home protection, uh, say a shotgun or, you know, a rifle that's taken out for hunting during hunting season, but it's actually something that's part of your everyday life that moves with you as you move through life. And that's something that really wasn't in the front of uh, mind in a lot of, at least in academic circles, certainly. And I think uh, even until recently, pre-Sandy Hook, pre Uh, the killing of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman really wasn't at the front of the minds of a lot of Americans who are outside of gun culture. So I went to Michigan. I interviewed um, dozens of men who carried guns as part of their everyday lives. I um, interviewed NRA instructors. So NRA instructors are actually the ones who um, end up providing the training so people can get their licenses to carry uh, firearms in Michigan. I went through the training myself. I got a concealed pistol license. I actually went through the NRA training. So i became an NRA certified instructor although I want everyone to know that I did not actually certify anyone as part of my research um, but that was really to see you know what is this world all about we all know there's there's a pretty big divide it's not too controversial to say that um, between these different sides of the gun debate in the United States and so I wanted to really immerse myself in in what uh, what that world was like and so what did I find um, when I got to Michigan I mean I focused on men, Largely because it's men who carry guns, um, who own guns disproportionately, who are most active in, you know, various aspects of gun culture. And what I found was that, sure, I heard a lot about sort of Obama and, in you know, kind of the conservative rhetoric. The Tea Party was very big at the time that I was doing my, my research in 2010. But I also heard a lot about loss, loss in terms of the, the decline of the manufacturing industry in Michigan, uh, particularly Metro Detroit, loss of good, stable, breadwinning jobs, loss of public services. Um, and so that really got me thinking about guns as men sort of finding their footing in what is, is a context in which sort of the pillars of masculinity, if we think about breadwinning, being a provider, uh, those have, you know, really eroded in a way um, that have has sort of shaken men's footing uh, in the social world.
0: So one of the things I think when I hear that is that you've also seen the erosion of this male breadwinner role in Canada and in Sweden and in France and Great Britain, but without this explosion of gun ownership and gun-dependent identity. So why has the U.S. been different on that if the economic trends are similar.
1: So to answer that question, I think you have to really go beyond sort of just the facts of manufacturing because it's true. There's been a shift in the economy. Um, it's a it's a global shift. It's not just a U.S. shift. One piece of the puzzle is you know gun laws and gun availability that provides a different tool than than is necessarily um, you know available in Canada where the laws are much more uh, restrictive. There's also a difference in terms of the meanings that are attached to guns. Canada never had sort of the the self. Defense, concealed carry, what what people call in the US gun culture 2.0, that kind of self-defense revolution and changing how Americans think about guns. Now, in the US in the 1960s and 1970s, if you actually look back to um the Gallup polling, more Americans supported a ban on handguns uh, than opposed it until the late 1960s, when those um, you know, those lines actually cross. And since the 1960s, Americans have overwhelmingly opposed a, a handgun ban. Um, and so to understand that. Um, um, you really have to think about the war on crime. You have to think about sort of these, the politics of fear and crime, tough on crime politics, and how gun politics really fit into that. Canada did not go through that same sort of transformation, um, at least to the extent of, of the U.S. If you ask Americans, what's the, if you have to pick one reason, why do you own guns? They will say self defense. The most, the, that will be the number one reason you hear. Only 20 years ago, that number one reason was hunting. So that's been a big shift. So I think that's, that's, a big piece of it, and then I think, of course, there's kind of the broader politics of work and dignity that really change how Americans, when they, you know, when they experience job loss, when they experience um, economic woes personally, whether they take that as sort of a personal failing or a failing of social provision, a failing of of the welfare state or what have you. And so, there's a wonderful book uh, called "Cut Loose" that actually compares Windsor auto workers. So right across the river from from Detroit and Detroit auto workers and really just gets at sort of how different the moral politics of work are. And I think that's that's the last piece to really kind of unpack why why are guns being attached with this moral politics that relates to these broader socioeconomic trends.
0: So unpack that very specifically for me. So you're a manufacturing worker uh, out of work in Michigan your wife is working, maybe she's become the primary breadwinner or at the very least uh, an equal breadwinner, and you purchase a gun. What is that gun doing for you? What identity are you assuming?
1: Yeah, so I want to kind of back up from that question just to say that my argument in the book isn't that you lose your job and you buy a gun. It's more this kind of sense of of broader insecurity and broader sort of socioeconomic decline. So certainly there were there were men that I interviewed who experienced um, on and off employment, um, economic precarity very directly, but for many of the men it was it was kind of this broader sense of, you know, Michigan is Michigan is sort of, you know, the epicenter of what's to come with the rest of the country and things are bad. They're probably going to get worse. So one of my favorite examples to go to with this in my book is actually someone who um, I call Nate in my book. Um, he has a professional job. If you if you saw his resume, you would think, wow, this this guy's fine. Like he's he is not experiencing any kind of socioeconomic insecurity. And so when I asked him, okay, so why do you have a gun? Why is this necessary? And he he narrated this kind of story of loss vis a vis his parents. So you know, he said, my parents were basically you know working class people. They had their stable jobs, but they just never had to really consider violence. They never had to consider the threat of violence, the threat of crime, of being a victim. Even if Nate can, you know, he has the house, he has the job, those things don't mean the same thing that they meant, you know, several decades prior under a strong manufacturing economy.
0: I want to question something we're taking for granted in this conversation. So so we began this conversation speaking about the meaning guns have for the men who carry them. And, and it's true that gun ownership and, and concealed carry and all of it is overwhelmingly disproportionately male in this country. But it's also weird. I mean, we forget that it's weird because we're used to it now. But if you think of guns as a self-defense tool and you think about who feels most vulnerable when going home, who probably is most vulnerable out on the street, the fact that this is overwhelmingly a male phenomenon and not a female phenomenon doesn't seem preordained. So why do you think gun ownership is so disproportionately male?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. And I did talk to women who concealed carry, um, even though they weren't really featured in the book, they, they kind of drop in and out of the book. Um, but when I talked to them, I actually got a very different narrative about why, why are they carrying guns um, and what does a gun mean to them? So if we pull back to the sort of Second Amendment debate, it's often, you know, this is my individual right. This is about my individual self right to self-defense. It's about self-protection. And when I talk to men about You know, tell me about a self defense scenario in which you would use your firearm defensively. Oftentimes, it was about self defense, but it also was about family protection. Family protection was a huge piece of the puzzle. This idea of if I'm working a job at night and my wife is at home and she's alone, there needs to be a firearm there so that she can be protected. And that's a really interesting move because it's basically, you know, the absent male protector. So I had a lot of, um, you know, a lot of conversations with men about, you know, I make sure that my girlfriends can, you know, I I always take them to the range and I want to make sure that they know how to shoot and defend themselves. If I hear about a a domestic violence victim at work, I take her out to the range. I go to the sheriff and try and get an emergency concealed pistol license for her and that sort of thing. And I think that's interesting because if you look at research sort of... uh, Uh, You know, in the 1990s, about like gun shows and and guns and that sort of thing, you hear a lot of, oh, women are gun grabbers. Women want to take away my guns. And I think that's been a big shift of, we need to, um, you know, promote guns to women. Um, There's a Glock ad. It's, you know, You Pick the Wrong Girl, which is, I I believe, the the tagline of it. But, you know, it it features this young uh, woman who's alone at home watching TV who gets a knock at the door. You know, he breaks in, breaks through the door. She pulls her firearm out and he just faints. It's unbelievable unclear if he faints at the sight of the firearm, if he faints at the sight of this beautiful woman, or if he's fainting at the fact that a woman is holding a gun. It's not clear. But regardless, Glock saves the day. So what were women saying about um, why they were carrying guns? Women themselves were uh, individualistic in terms of, you know, this is my right to self-defense. My life is valuable in and of itself. I don't need to have kids to feel like I need to have a gun to protect them. I can have a gun to protect myself. Um, so, so yeah, so it was actually interesting that if we think about the stereotypes of like, you know, women as other-oriented and men as more individualistic, it was actually flipped um, among the people that I talked to um, when, where women were much more sort of self, self-motivated in terms of this individual right to self-defense.
0: That's super interesting. Let me ask you about the racial politics of this as well. How, how does carrying a gun read differently when the carrier is black rather than white, say.
1: The racial politics of this were really fascinating to me. So in many states, uh, whites are actually, you know, proportionate to their population, um, more likely to be armed than than other groups. But in Michigan, when I was doing my research, that it was actually um, parity. So African-Americans and whites were per capita armed to concealed carry. They were legally licensed to concealed carry by the state at equal rates, which is actually really surprising when you think that, um, you know, we know, um, you know, thanks to mass incarceration and the of mass incarceration on African-Americans, particularly African-American men. We know that um, African-American men are disproportionately going to have a felony record. That is a disqualifier to own a gun, much less get a gun license. And so the fact that the rates were equal, even given that, I think is pretty telling in terms of sort of the, the desire to carry a gun. So there's two questions, right? Is there a difference in terms of race, in terms of why people are carrying guns? And then also, how is that actually being looked at differently by public? law enforcement, for example. So in terms of the why are people carrying guns, this concern about crime and decline, um, this was actually something I heard from everyone. Um, and of course, we would think that in Detroit, where the murder rate is higher, carjackings, assaults, uh, sexual assaults, all of that is is at higher rates in, in Detroit than in its suburbs. Of course, we would imagine that um, issues of self-defense and crime would be um, on the minds of concealed carriers. Um, and open carriers as well. So one of the people that I opened my, um, book with this guy named Jason, he's a Detroiter. Um, and he basically says, you know, I wanted to get a gun license because I have a gut. Uh, this is kind of paraphrasing him, but you know, I have a gut. Uh, I want to be able to exercise. I want to be able to go outside and I don't feel safe doing that. So I'm going to carry a gun. Well, he decided that it actually was easier for him to carry a gun openly than concealed. Uh, he, he went through the licensing process. Um, and so he ended up having, uh, attracting the, the attention of, of Detroit police because here you have African-American man with, you know, openly carrying, carrying a gun. And so one of the, the um, incidents that he described to me when I met him and that I talk about in my book is, you know, he's, he's on Woodward, which is, you know, one of the main thoroughfares in, um, in Detroit. He's next to a bus stop and, you know, people are gathering, uh, you know, kind of around him as police come, you know, with their hands on their guns to, to stop stop him and question him about, you know, having this openly carried gun. So, you know, the police run his numbers, the police put him in the back of the police car. Um, they, you know, he's like, I'm I'm clean, I check out. And so, you know, they run everything, they say, okay, you check out. And so he gets out of the car and they, the police hand him back his gun because it's legal, right? Um, and he, you know, he actually shared me with me the audio recording because he he eventually started tape recording while he went out just to have these, you know, have this uh, on record. Um, and And, you know, you can hear on this recording people clapping, you know, at this bus stop who are suddenly like, police gave this this man back (laughs) his gun and didn't take him to jail. Another guy I interviewed, his family had um, come up to Detroit from the the Great Migration. And, you know, I asked him, okay, so, you know, what what does it mean for you to carry a gun? And he responded, you know, well, back in the day, my grandma used to shoot off her shotgun on the front porch down south to to scare off the KKK. Now, today, I'm in Detroit and I carry my semi-automatic for self-defense. And so he really linked it as, you know, this is a new iteration of a history that's been going on for quite a while.
0: But it, it's so interesting to me the way it both maps onto our history and our, our present. Some of the, the early fights over gun control and, and the early successes at gun control came after Black Panthers wielded guns, right, Show, showed guns outside, I believe, as a California state capitol. And, and it was Republicans at that time who quickly passed gun control. And Sometimes I'll see these demonstrations from open carry advocates and I wonder if the Black Lives Matter protests had 500 African-American protesters, each one of them holding a gun, what would Donald Trump's response be? What would the response of white America be? Because I don't think it would be to celebrate Second Amendment rights.
1: Yeah, so I mean, there are groups that have been that have done this. So the Huey Newton Gun Club in Dallas has, you know, staged protests and and protested in front of police stations, you know, with regard to cases of of deaths in custody and and police violence and and police perpetrated homicides. And they're fully armed and you know armed with long guns when they do this. So this is happening. There are examples, and you know, I, I think that. These don't, these don't get a lot of coverage, but examples where you do have um, groups of, you know, a variety of racial and, and gender, you know, identities and backgrounds who are open carrying together. So so I think that that actually does happen, but it, you know, it doesn't get a lot of press when it does happen. If you look at Rick Ector, for example, uh, he runs an organization called, you know, his it's it, the tagline is Get Laid, Get Legally Armed in Detroit. And he is focused on arming African-Americans. There is... Uh, And I'm going to mispronounce his name, I'm sure, because I I only follow him on on Twitter and Instagram, but Maj Touré, his tagline is... Uh, Black guns matter. African American man teaching African Americans about gun safety and and talking about gun rights. Um, so there's actually a lot of that happening, but it's it's like there's this this kind of cognitive dissonance in the in the media where you know you'll have sort of the usual story about you know what are guns all about in America, and then they'll be like oh, but then there's you know Rick Hector in Detroit doing this.
0: So, to, to pivot to something that is in the news, uh, we're speaking about two weeks after the Florida shootings. And in that aftermath of, of these massacres that happen in America with this terrifying regularity, we have this conversation that is almost has this depressing predictability. People who support gun control, which I include myself in that number, you know, we we push out these statistics like America has 4% of the world's population and half of its civilian-owned guns. There is this, you know, effort to say, how many times are we going to just send thoughts and prayers and, and keep letting this happen? The, the the other side of this debate, I think, feels very unfairly victimized in, in that conversation. And, and so I want to hear about that. How, how do gun owners who take this citizen protector identity seriously, how do they experience experience a shooting like the one in Florida and the subsequent coverage of it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a that's the key question, right? How how are we so divided on how we can see the same thing and come away from Come away from it with totally different perspectives on on not only what should be done, but what it even what it even means. Uh, so okay, so there's a couple of things that I think people who are kind of invested in in what I call the citizen protector model of, of gun ownership and gun carrying really uh, kind of experience in relationship to um, to this. The first thing is that um, kind of unpacking guns as as many things. So, you know, obviously a mass shooting, this is an act of violence, this is an act of aggression, this is an act of, of of heinous terror, but that's not how gun carriers see the guns that are in their homes, right? That's not how they see the guns that they carry on their side. They see these as tools of, of effectively being a, a good person, being willing to step in, and if you're at that mass shooting, um, you know, step in and and try and defend someone the gun is not this abstract kind of taboo object for gun carriers it's something that's part of their everyday lives and so and that's something that you see you know it's it's kind of sounds silly to say you know what's the biggest predictor of whether someone supports gun control and you know it'll be oh if they're a gun owner or not well that sounds really obvious but I think unpacking, you know, what it means to actually be familiar with this object and not just see it in the movies, see it in crime reports and, the, and and see it in the media. So there, there's kind of all of that going on. But then I think there's also this important point to be made, which is that background checks, keeping guns out of the quote unquote wrong hands, that that is actually um widely popular. So Pew, you know, does these in-depth surveys of, of gun owners and, and, you know, the American public more broadly on gun ownership. And if you look at... Um, for example preventing the mentally ill from purchasing guns i mean you're at 80 90% of gun owners actually saying you know this is something we want but then you also look at sort of you know the other side of that which is the the making sure that the quote unquote good guys have guns you also see 80 85% of gun owners saying you know that's that's also something that is you know a policy move in the that should be undertaken or at least considered
0: if we had a world where you had to go through real hoops to own a gun—a background check and 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 you know heavy levels of registration—and there was a waiting period, and the number of guns you could have was quite limited. You know, one maybe two. So you'd have people buying up arsenals and you know handing them out uh, to, to, to to others. I think a lot of people would feel better about it. I mean, I I'm I'm probably not that comfortable with a a, a big wide world of guns, but. I do think one of the interesting things is that there isn't more of an effort on the part of these gun owners to develop an identity, to develop a moat that says, "Hey, we're the responsible ones, and we're the ones willing to do this." And if you want to be part of our group, much in the way of of the the, the guy you spoke to says, "Hey, you want to be like me carrying this gun? Then you you know follow the law and you you be an upstanding citizen." Mm-hmm. I, I do think it's interesting that gun owners have been, I think, pretty complicit in allowing themselves to be connected to folks who are in many cases doing things less responsibly than the bulk of them are.
1: So I think actually that they would say, you know, that's what the NRA is. That's the NRA, you know, the NRA, yeah, they're this political lobby. But, you know, and I think a lot of them would actually say, yeah, and I, I'm sick of getting all of their calls and their, their mailings. And what I what I go for the NRA for is the training. In a lot of states, in a lot of places, um, if you want to have gun training, it's probably going to be by an NRA certified trainer or by someone who has been certified um, at some point by the NRA. And that's certainly the case case with a lot of the concealed pistol licensing laws, either implicitly or explicitly, they named the NRA as, you know, this is where you can get your gun training. That's something that the I, I would actually say that the gun control lobby has sort of um, dropped the ball on, which is that while all these laws are being passed that are not just sort of changing the legal terrain so that Americans can k- integrate guns into their everyday lives as, you know, self-defense tools and what have you, but that legal structure is also writing in either implicitly or explicitly, Explicitly a place for the NRA to train these gun carriers. And so what do they do when they get to the gun training? If you follow the course guidelines, you end the course with a module on why the NRA is a wonderful organization that cares about your safety, that you should join the NRA because they're going to continue to fight for your rights. Suddenly you have a scenario in which you have the training dominated by uh, the NRA, which has always been the case, but now it's actually written into law that this is, you know, this is the training that, that. Makes sense to get a concealed pistol license. So I think that the I think gun owners and gun carriers would say, yeah, we've been talking about responsible gun ownership long before you know the gun the gun control lobby even figured out what a bubstock was. And then I would also say that um, so my new research uh, actually is about public law enforcement and their attitudes on guns. And I was driving around rural Michigan, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, driving to to an interview. And I was listening to the local radio, and there was a public service announcement about locking up your guns and making sure that your guns are safely stored. And you know, if you're if you're talking about the gun debate, you know, outside of Flyover America, you would have no idea that those conversations are even happening. As another example, um, there's a, a, an initiative called uh, Project Gunshop or the gun Shop Project, and it's actually geared at getting gun store owners and gun store employees to recognize the signs of mental illness, particularly with regard to suicide. So there's about 30,000 gun deaths every year in the United States. About 10,000 of those are homicides. 20,000 of those roughly are suicides. And so the whole purpose of this is to say, hey, you know, if you see someone who is possibly, you know, having a mental health crisis, you are essentially the first frontline workers. I mean, they, gun store owners are the frontline of any kind of gun regulation because they're, you know, they're selling guns. They're at that frontline position. And so that's basically this, this organization is like, let's exploit that. And, you know, that's a, that's a great example of sort of reaching across the aisle. And, and it's not done in this way that sort of, you know, let's ban all guns. It's like, okay, what is the situation? What, what is the reality of the situation right now? What is the reality of the parameters we have to work with and how can we get everybody on board and I, I think that that's so so I think that's another example of sort of um, you know those, those kinds of efforts
0: so what I think is interesting about this is the disconnect at some level between the lived experience of many gun owners and then the macro political strategy being sought by their by their organization and and the reason I pointed out is that it's different than it is in other spheres. So as you say, Within the gun community, there's a tremendous emphasis on safety. There are wonderful efforts being done to try to recognize the signs of mental illness, to to train people in gun safety, in gun storage, in marksmanship. You talk a lot in the book in a way that I think is really interesting about the amount of civic education within the NRA's training programs, how much it's trying to embody a certain form of citizenship. But then when it moves to the political realm, it's extremely maximalist. The basic argument being made here is that virtually all regulation on guns should be self-regulation, that virtually all regulation on guns should be the regulation people put on themselves, that they take it on themselves to make sure they're following the safety guidelines. They take it on themselves to make sure that they're recognizing the signs of mental illness. They take it on themselves sort of over and over. The the way the, the political effort plays out is that you know, even pretty mild regulations are fought tooth and nail to make sure that, you know, the government is not doing what the the gun community would prefer they, they get to do themselves. And what's interesting to me is that, that that's actually not how most other issues play out. There is a huge effort in a lot of policy spheres for people who are trying to protect a right they have or want to get more rights than they have to try to compromise into legislation, you know, that they're doing things a popular way or that they're self-regulating. I mean, one of the interesting corollaries, I think, here is in the drug reform movement and the criminal justice reform movements, where there's a huge amount of concessions made to the fears people have in order to try to get some of the legislation changed or in order to expand legislation that is already on the books. And, you know, this is one of the places where I actually really get why, the NRA and and folks in the gun community feel that this conversation stereotypes them because it is reflecting the legislative strategy, not the strategy they feel they live. And on the other hand, that actually is the legislative strategy in a way that that ends up painting a lot of them with a brush that I think they, they'd prefer not to be painted with. And the decision to try to have both those things at the same time is an unusual one. I, I think a lot of other lobbies – do more to try to show that they're accommodating concerns and critics than the gun lobby does.
1: Yeah, I I mean, it's just it's so interesting because it's it's really a it's it's a policy debate and a politics that plays out so differently at you know as you already said at the federal level and then at the the very intimate local you know like like in your home you know what this gun means in your home kind of level and also at the state level so you see very the NRA acting very doing different things at the state level than they necessarily would do at the national level I think that you know the first step to sort of understanding you know what what is the gun debate all about and what's going on is really stepping back and having an appreciation that there is a, I mean, it's it's impossible to keep track of every single gun law across, I mean, there are thousands of gun laws at the federal, state, and local level. It's a mess. It is, I mean, it's it's a very confusing policy mess and, and different jurisdictions are going in different directions. But the NRA has actually, I, I think what's illuminating is where has there been bipartisan work and wh- what does compromise look like? The first example, that I would highlight is mental health so the NRA has collaborated and worked with um, state level policymakers in terms of basically strengthening mental health restrictions now one of their you know one of their requests and what often comes along with these bills is some kind of um, mechanism for rights restoration so can you get your firearms rights restored after being disqualified because of mental health but you know these are laws that expand the background check system expand the data Databases, which is a huge problem in terms of how those databases are populated, who's populating them, are they being sent off? Are they even going from the local to the state level, let alone the the federal level? And so the NRA has has been a part of that. The other piece of it, um, there is a lot of gun control, and it's African Americans who generally experience it. So if we look at the criminalization of possession of a firearm, you know, you know, a, a gun that is unloaded and um, you know is not used in the commission of a crime, but is on a person Person that will carry a mandatory sentence. um, And that will help aggravate the sentencing disparities that we already know exist between African Americans and whites.
0: One thing I want to talk about here, because I I do think it plays very deeply into how these debates end up going, is how the experience of having a gun on you changes your experience of of the world. And and you talk about this quite a bit in the book, the way in which the gun carriers that you interviewed and and spent time with. They're constantly scanning for threats. They're, they're sitting with a clear view of all the exits. They're, they're existing within it, – it, it, having the gun, it seems like it makes the world into much more of a drama in which they're the hero and they may be called to do these extraordinary, dangerous, heroic things at, at any moment. And it, it sounded to me like a really addictive, interesting way to approach the world, to enliven your day, particularly if other parts of your life – at this point, offer less opportunity for for that kind of narrative and and, and status and feeling of essentialness.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely um, a bit of. The gun being engrossing, right? It's this heavy thing that's on your hip. You know it's there, um, and certainly, I mean, this is in the NRA classes where you know part of what they talk about is situational awareness, looking at your surroundings. Um, you know, running through scenarios, thinking through. You know, uh, if someone came through the door, how you know how would how would things go down? And so that's definitely something that you know it is encouraged by these classes to think through. Sort of, and part of that is thinking through the implication that you have a lethal weapon on your person. One thing that I about in my book, though, is that, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on sort of, you know, practice with your firearm, be able to unholster, you know, know that you might have to shoot, fr- you know, shoot from an uncomfortable position. What happens if your dominant hand goes down and you have to shoot with your non-dominant hand? Think about all these contingencies and, and commit it to muscle memory. Be aware that, you know, threats will, you know, something could happen when you're, you know, when you least expect it and that sort of thing. But what is missing in the NRA courses and then the courses that I... I Watched as and, and and observed in my research was that question of how do you know if a threat is actually a threat. And I think, of course, of race. You know, of, of things like the weapons bias and the fact that social psychologists have shown that if you have a, a object that's you know an ambiguous object that's associated with a darker skin face as opposed to a lighter skin face, you're more likely to see that that object as a gun with a darker skin face. And if it is a gun with a white face, this is actually interesting. It'll take you longer to realize that that's a gun. <laughs> that stuff isn't talked about in the NRA classes or in the classes that I I observed. And so if we're going to have gun training classes, that needs to be part of the conversation. Not just do we see the threat, not just can we respond to the threat, but how do we know if a threat is actually a threat? That's a big missing piece of the puzzle.
0: But and, and this is a part of the whole thing that, that I find very unnerving. I, I understand the appeal of entering into this world where you have this power to respond to threats and you're looking at the world through this lens and you might be called upon to be a protector at, at any moment. I, I, I get that on a guttural level. On the other hand, it can it can go so wrong. Um, you have a pretty interesting section in the book where you talk about George Zimmerman, who killed Trayvon Martin, and and you write because he was somebody who was involved in his neighborhood watch and you know really clearly saw himself as operating in a quasi uh, community policing role. And you write that the the terrifying possibility is not that George Zimmerman is a bad guy who used gun laws to commit a racially motivated murder out of hatred and malice. It's that he, not unlike police officers who insist they do not hold racist views even while engaging in the practice of racial profiling, may have sincerely believed he was doing the right thing with good intentions, but it's the same result. A dead 17-year-old African-American boy who paid for profiling as a criminal with his life. And I, I take your point that it would be better if this gun training included more threat assessment. But the consequences of getting that threat assessment wrong are so profound that, I mean, I think this is where the gun debate really diverges, that no matter how well-intentioned people are, I mean, unless you went through extraordinary training, I more or less don't want people to have the capacity to misunderstand a threat and then kill a 17-year-old boy
1: and i mean i think that it extends to public law enforcement too so i mean this is kind of the conundrum of violence in a democratic society do you how do you and, and, i mean this is like a core <laughs> this is a core question of state formation how do you distribute violence in such a way and here i'm thinking not of criminal violence but of legitimate violence do you say nobody has access to it do you say if you do x y and z that's that is what credentializes you to have access to it and i think it i mean So I guess to kind of answer your question with another question is that there's a real tendency to say, okay, so gun carriers are doing this over here. Public law enforcement are doing that over there. But really, this is not two separate cases. This is kind of a continuum of the same basic question, which in a society that, you know, one of the roots of early law enforcement and one of the historical reasons for, you know, a Second Amendment, and obviously history is more complex. It is not just about these two things, but slave patrols have a core relationship to the development of those two things. And so I think that, um, first of all, not talking about race with respect to gun politics um, and really trying to appreciate, again, going back to what we talked about earlier, sort of the complexities of how race informs all this stuff with lethal consequences, and also thinking about how this is linked to public law enforcement and and in ways that um, I think actually illuminate, you know, the broader questions of how do we want to have a society in which some people will have access to to legitimate violence? I think that's a conversation that I, I don't know if we're ready to have it, but I think if we could have it, we would probably move. <laughs> we would probably have a much better gun debate as a result.
0: Well, let's talk about how to have a much better gun debate. You, you write at one point that a more productive and perhaps less divisive debate would focus on how guns can be made not illegal, but less socially relevant by addressing some of the root causes of contemporary demand for firearms. What what would that mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that looking at you know in the book, obviously, I place a lot of emphasis on sort of socioeconomic decline, on racialized uh, racial disparities in access to resources such as protection and protection both in terms of being able to afford to live in a safe community or a safer community, as well as public services that would provide protection. So I think that's where that's that's where I think that comes into play, um, and then. I I think the other side of that as well is you know thinking about where there actually is common ground. Part of what is embedded in my my kind of let's make guns you know if you want to solve the gun issue uh, in the in the United States, it's making guns less relevant rather than making them illegal. That in itself kind of tries to pull apart that when we say the gun debate. You know, there's a gun policy, debate, and then there's, you know, the gun debate about like, what do guns actually mean to us? And how do we enhance that, change that, um, you know, transform that? Um, And so there's different, even in terms of like, what are the, you know, what are the stakes of the debate? It can be really different.
0: I, I guess I'm skeptical of that for this reason. So when I look at some of these social determinants of disorder or distress, I don't see in their fluctuations a huge relationship. To, to gun ownership. We've had periods, let's say the 90s, of very strong and even at that point broadly shared economic growth. And, and that was a period in which gun ownership and, and, and gun politics were increasing and also hardening. I mean, the, the NRA had this huge election in 94. It's often considered the the beginning of their, their real power in American politics. And you talk about crime as this profound driver of this. But for most of the period we're talking about, the, the 90s, the 2000s, I mean, coming up until last year or two, you've had really profound drops in crime. Uh, you have murder rate at its lowest rate since, I believe, the 70s. And yet this period has been a, a sharp increase in, in, in gun ownership and in the hard line of gun politics. So what makes you confident that, that those things would change the, the gun debate?
1: So I think the first thing to think through with regard to, you know, how crime rates relate to this debate is to kind of uh, really take into account that people's perceptions of crime, fear of crime, whether crime went up or down last year, has not a very strong relationship to actual crime rates. And so that's why when I talk about crime, I talk about the politics of crime, tough on crime politics, the language of crime, crime as a lens to think through social disorder. Because the big The big paradox, of course, is that crime is going down, so why is it that now... People are carrying guns in unprecedented numbers. Something else is going going on. You have to think about the culture of crime rather than just crime. You know, pure crime rates. As far as socioeconomic decline, I mean, there was a there was a recent article actually published in this uh, academic journal called Social Problems that actually tested um, what I argue in my book, which is this. You know, that feelings of socioeconomic decline, socioeconomic insecurity, are connected to gun ownership, and they found actually a national level uh, relationship between those two things. So, I mean, I think that you're right. in the sense that once you kind of have this culture and that's compelled by, a, you know, a structural a structural factor, um, you can't necessarily, you know, taking away that structural factor doesn't necessarily undermine that culture. Right. So you have like there's some inertia there. But I think that you you have to think through what that structural and cultural relationship is to get further, you know, to to even come to really understand what is the deeper thing that that guns are doing. What's the deeper work that they're doing? Uh,
0: so let me ask you the question while I was used to close show, which is what are three books that you've read either in the course of this work or, or just broadly that you would recommend to the audience?
1: Yeah. So, um, I can recommend, first of all, uh, Dave Collins Columbine, um, going back to that book and really reading through, um, just so many of the same parallels so many of the same conversations and and some differences um in terms of columbine versus um, what's happening now with mass shootings. so i would put that on and it's a wonderfully written book it's it's really engaging um and for you know especially the young people who are becoming activists i think that it's interesting to to read columbine um by Colin and, and really think of it as sort of um this this watershed um, mass shooting in terms of changing policy in terms in terms of um you know uh, kind of indicating this this new breaking point in terms of this you know what some people call an era in mass shootings that book is definitely on the top of my list um chokehold by paul butler which is an excellent book about uh race and policing um it's billed as sort of the the um new jim crow uh about not mass incarceration but about policing and the racial politics of policing and so that is definitely awesome and then for a book that is totally different but is really um kind of, uh, I think, important for, you know, Again, thinking about everyday experience and and using that to inform these broader policy debates, um, I've really enjoyed uh, Neda Magbula's The Limits of Whiteness, which is a book about um, Iranian Americans um, and how they navigate uh, the racial politics of whiteness. Um, So especially as we're debating um, migration and um, Islamophobia and all of these things, I think her book is definitely something that should be read, uh, especially if you want to not think about guns for a few minutes. (laughs)
0: Jennifer Carlson, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you to Jennifer Carlson for being on the show. Thank you to my producers, Bird Pinkerton and Jillian Weinberger, the Ezra Klein Shows of Vox Media podcast production, and we will be back next week.